turn with me, if you would, this morning to the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. Let's set the stage for the text that we'll be examining today. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 26 through 40, but let's consider where we have been in this chapter, how the chapter lays itself out or how it, is, how it progresses. In verses 1 through 3, we read that the persecution of the church in Jerusalem rose to such a level that many believers were forced to flee the city. And here on the screen, you see a map of first century Israel with Jerusalem marked in red. And because of the persecution that was raised in, uh, in the early days of the church here, largely conducted by a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, we're told that many were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, immediately we should think of what Jesus said in, verses, in, in chapter 1 and verse 8. When we hear these words, Judea and Samaria, it should take our minds back to what Jesus said in chapter 1 and verse 8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in all Judea, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so the stage is being set for us here to see the next development of the spread of the gospel. Up to this point, the ministry of the word has largely been confined to the city of Jerusalem, but now we're moving from the city of Jerusalem to the regions of Judea and Samaria. Then we learn in verses 4 through 13 that one of those who fled Jerusalem as a result of the persecution was a man by the name of Philip, who incidentally will be referred to later in the book, chapter 21, as Philip the Evangelist. And we'll come to see that there's good reason for this. You'll remember that he was one of the seven who had been appointed by the apostles in chapter 6 to attend to the needs of the poor widows in the church, and specifically the Hellenist among the Jews. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews uh, that were in Jerusalem, and it was said that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. But as a result of persecution, he fled the city, and he went north to the city of Samaria, and there he preached Christ to the Samaritans, who were the long-standing and much-despised rivals of the Jews. And so this is a very significant development, again, in the progress of the gospel as it goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Uh, But the Lord blessed Philip's preaching there in Samaria to such an extent that many came to believe and were baptized, even a very notable religious figure in that city known as Simon the Magician. Then in verses 14 and 15, it says, When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And they spent some time there, we're told, teaching them and building them up in the faith. And then in verse 25, it says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, and apparently, by the way, Philip went with them, and they preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans along the way. And so we come to our text today in which we find another evangelistic enterprise of this man by the name of Philip. And so we read beginning at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. 
He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news concerning Jesus. And as they were going along, uh, going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, so here in this passage, we see how the Lord supernaturally guided Philip in his evangelistic enterprises. Um, we see that the Spirit, or the angel of the Lord, rather, in the first instance, and then the Spirit later, are giving him very clear directions about where to go. Um, in the first place, uh, in a more general uh, act of guidance, the angel of the Lord tells him to go south to the road, uh, on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, Gaza, you might remember, as being one of the ancient cities of the Philistines, one of the great enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. But this is the direction that the Lord had told Philip to go. And the distance there is about 50 miles. And then a little later, um, the Lord, through the Spirit, directed Philip more specifically to speak to a particular man on that road. A man by the name, or we actually don't have his name, but he's a eunuch from Ethiopia. Now, interestingly enough, even though there must have been 20,000 or more converts by this time, 20,000 or more believers by relatively conservative estimates, this is the first one that we have an account of his individual experience. And that's really rather remarkable to me. Of all of the other people that have been converted, we're told that there were 3,000 that were converted on the day of Pentecost. We're told a little bit later that the number reached 5,000 in the church, and these were men, not including their wives and children. So the numbers were pretty pretty high, but we're never given a particular account of an individual's conversion until we get to this man in chapter 8. And so I think that this is highly significant for that reason, if for no other, even though there are other significant reasons. Um, The individual in question was a high-ranking official of the Ethiopian court, uh, the treasurer of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, it's important, I think, to know that in Greek, Ethiopia referred to all of Africa south of Egypt, and not specifically the country that we know today. Uh, modern Ethiopia. It was a broad term designating all the tribes that were largely unknown and all of the kingdoms largely unknown but heard of by reports um, south of Egypt. And it would include what we now think of as Ethiopia, but this man was probably not from that far south, um, a little bit further 
uh, further to the north. In fact, it probably, because of the mention of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, it is certainly the kingdom of Nubia, as it was called in this day. And in ancient times, in uh, the Old Testament, it was referred to as the kingdom of Cush, C-U-S-H. And you might remember that Moses married a Cushite woman. So he married one of the ancestors, in all likelihood, um, of, of this Ethiopian. So this is all quite interesting when we consider it in its larger biblical context. Now, the kingdom of Nubia, or the kingdom of Cush, was on the outer limits of that realm of the world that was known by people within the Roman Empire, including the Jews. Uh, Ethiopia, or the lands south of Egypt, were kind of an exotic land in their conception, an unknown and mysterious land. And here is somebody from that region who is coming to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way back home, he comes to find Christ through the preaching of Philip. So he had come all the way from his native land to Jerusalem and was now returning, and he was on that road between Jerusalem and Gaza. Now, it says that he was uh, traveling in a chariot, and he probably would take this chariot, which was actually probably more likely a four-wheeled cart, because the Greek word has a little bit broader significance than what we think of as the war machine of a chariot. Um, And the fact that he was not actually engaged in battle is suggestive that it wasn't a chariot per se, a two-wheeled machine, but rather a four-wheeled cart to make such a long journey. But he would take that to Egypt, and then he would sail... Um, we would think down the Nile, but it's actually against the current. It's up the Nile, um, south uh, to his homeland. Now, this man was, uh, by all appearances, a proselyte, which means a Gentile by birth, but a Jew by religion. Some think he was not a proselyte, but a God-fearing Gentile. But that bridge doesn't seem to be crossed until we are introduced to Cornelius in chapter 10. Peter will later say that God had chosen him, Peter, to first speak or first bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so it would seem that this man was not a Gentile by religion, a Gentile by birth, but a Jew by religion. So he is a proselyte. In any event, it should perhaps be pointed out in these racially charged times what should otherwise be sufficiently obvious, and that is that being an Ethiopian or a Nubian or a Cushite, he was black. I trust that we know the scriptures well enough to know that skin color is of no consequence to God. It's of no more consequence than hair color or eye color or height or any other physical characteristic. These are all non-voluntary characteristics, which is to say that they're not chosen by those who possess them. I mean, how many of you chose to be the height that you are or to have the hair co- Well, I guess some of you do color your hair, maybe. <laughs> but in terms of the natural color of your hair, that's not a choice. That's something that is written into your DNA. Same thing with your eye color. These are non-voluntary, and because they're non-voluntary, they are non-moral issues and have no moral or spiritual bearing. The important thing is that this man was a human being and that he was created in the image of God, just like white Europeans, olive-colored Near Easterners, and copper-colored Native Americans. Uh, The Bible teaches very clearly that we're all descendants of Adam, As Paul said when he was speaking in Athens, he said that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And what a blow it must be uh, to so-called Christian white supremacists, which really is kind of an oxymoron, but what a blow it must be to them to learn that the first individual account of a convert was black, a black African and not a white European. 
Now, we will get later into the book of Acts where the gospel crosses over into Europe, but isn't it interesting that it goes to Africa before it goes to Europe? Well, in addition to being a foreigner, this man was also a eunuch. A eunuch, of course, is a man whose testicles have been removed, or in some cases, even the whole male genitalia. It was common in many cultures uh, of the ancient world, and even until relatively recent times in Muslim lands, um, and even in China, to find or to make eunuchs to serve the royal household, especially in two places, in the harem and also in the treasury. In the harem, for obvious reasons, in order to assure the offspring of the king's wives and concubines belong to the king and not to one of his attendants guarding the harem. And in the treasury, because it was believed that a man that was incapable of having a wife and children uh, would, have, would be more trustworthy than other men. And why is that? Because a eunuch would have no independent and competing interests. Right? He doesn't have a family to look after. He doesn't have a family to provide for. He doesn't have a, a family to have ambitions for, to leave a lot of wealth to, or to seize power and to start his own dynasty. He's completely independent. His, his future is cut off because he has no children. And so it was believed that, that the eunuch who serves in the treasury would be loyal to the king because he prospers as his king prospers. His well-being is tied to the well-being of the kingdom. And so this man was both a foreigner uh, and a eunuch. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, which indicates being an Ethiopian or a Nubian or a Cushite, that he was Gentile, but also that he was a proselyte. He had come to believe in the God of Abraham and had in some way been converted. And so he was coming probably to offer sacrifice. And now he's returning home and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, almost certainly not in the original Hebrew, but in the Greek translation, which is known as the Septuagint. And providentially, the passage that he was reading at that very moment that Philip approached him was from Isaiah chapter 53, which, as we've talked about before, is one of the most extraordinary prophecies of Jesus Christ and really one of the clearest prophecies, not so much beforehand as after the fact, to look back into Isaiah chapter 53 and read what's written there about the servant of the Lord and to see how it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is one of the best ways, as I've mentioned before, to witness to a Jew. Um, interestingly enough, Isaiah chapter 53 in the weekly synagogue readings is omitted because the rabbis believe that it's too confusing for the average Jew to read. It sounds like it's talking about Jesus of Nazareth, that one whom the, the Christians worship. And so they omit it from the, the weekly readings that they go, they systematically read through the law and the prophets over a course of several years, but they omit Isaiah chapter 53. And one of the best ways, as our dear friend Steve Schlissel in Brooklyn has mentioned, one of the best ways to witness to a Jew is to read the passage of Isaiah chapter 53 and then ask your Jewish friend, about whom is, uh, you know, who, who's this, or first of all, where is, it, where is this passage taken from, do you suppose? And almost inevitably, they will say, well, I suppose it's someplace in the New Testament, because obviously it's talking about Jesus. And then when you point out to them, actually, it's in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's from the prophet Isaiah. It has a tremendous uh, impact. You can't hardly ignore it. It's so clear. Now, the passage that he was reading, the Ethiopian, it was taken from verses 7 and 8. But let's uh, read the entire passage in context of Isaiah chapter 53. And again, notice how clear it is after the fact who this is referring to, and what in this individual's life is being referred to. Again, Isaiah chapter 53, 
And really, the prophecy itself begins at the latter portion of chapter 52. And it's the fourth of four servant songs in Isaiah. Isaiah has four passages in which the Lord speaks of my servant. And they all are prophetic of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's son, as we know, but he is also depicted in Scripture as the Lord's servant, his faithful servant. He is the true Israel. He is the embodiment of everything that God um, uh, had, intention, had intentions for in terms of Israel by being faithful and obedient to the law and fulfilling the purpose for which he sent him into the world. And so he is addressing or speaking of my servant. And he goes on to say in chapter 53, beginning in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And you think about the circumstances of Jesus' life. He was born to a poor couple, right? We know this because they offered the poor woman's offering for her cleansing. According to the law, after childbirth, a woman was to offer a lamb in sacrifice. But there's a provision for the law. If she is too poor to offer a lamb, let her offer two turtle doves or two pigeons. And that's what Mary offers, So she is poor. Joseph is poor. There's none of the pomp and circumstance. There's none of the glories of royalty that attend his birth. He lives in very poor circumstances. He works as a carpenter with his father. He has no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, that makes him stand out from the crowd of men and distinguishes him as being so superior or more important than others. And in fact, just the opposite, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Speaking on behalf of the nation, we despised him. We did not esteem him. But then, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In the first part of that verse, The Lord is telling us what the actual um, purpose for our Lord's suffering was. He was bearing our griefs. He was carrying our sorrows associated with the consequences of sin. That was man's view of it. I'm sorry, that's God's view of it. He has borne the griefs of my people. He has carried their sorrows. But we, Israel, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. While he's hanging upon the cross, the people were saying, if God really takes pleasure in him, let God come and deliver him. And the fact that God doesn't deliver him from the cross is proof that he is smitten by God. He's getting his just deserts. He calls himself the Son of God. But look at what is taking place. God is smiting him for his blasphemy. But then again, turning the perspective around, telling us the truth about what was going on. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we have such a clear articulation of the substitutionary atonement. Our sins have been laid upon Jesus, and he suffered on account of them. 
And then in verse 7 now is where the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? There was no one standing around the cross who considered that this was the real reason why he was cut off, why he was stricken. They thought it was for his own sins, for his own blasphemy, for his own presumption and claiming to be a prophet and and even, of all things, the Son of God. Look at what God is doing to him now. But the prophet Isaiah says, who considered the reality of the matter that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Not for his transgression, but for ours. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Wait a minute. Didn't it just say that he was going to be stricken and afflicted and he's going to be cut off? He's going to be killed? Why is it now that he says that he will prolong his days? and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's a veiled reference to the resurrection. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoiled with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now about the fourth time in the passage where it talks about this suffering servant of Jehovah bearing the sin, uh, suffering the consequences of those who were transgressors in his own person that they might go free. So what the, the passage that the Ethiopian was reading was right in the heart of Isaiah chapter 53. And again, it speaks so clearly of the cross and more so than any other passage of the Old Testament. But the eunuch doesn't understand the passage, and so he asks Philip, about whom does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Now, if you like, as you should, though we all sometimes feel a little trepidation at doing so, like to share the gospel with people, you're looking for the perfect setup. (laughs) This is the perfect setup. He's reading a passage about Christ, a prophetic passage about his suffering and the bearing of sin and its consequences, no less. And the evangelizee, the eunuch, is saying, now who is the prophet speaking? And so it's the perfect setup for Philip from this very passage to begin to speak of Christ. And that is exactly what he does. In verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And I'm sure that it wasn't just the specific lines that are quoted, but the entire passage, because you can't really understand those couple of verses without understanding it in the larger passage. And so he begins to explain to the Ethiopian eunuch about Christ and how he bore the sin of many and for all who would believe upon him. Now, there's a great deal of significance um, in the coming to faith of this eunuch um, in terms of the movement of redemptive history. 
Uh, The Lord is directing Philip to minister to this particular man according to the plan that he had from before the foundations of the world, to choose a people, to select a man from whom he would enter into a covenantal relationship, and through this people, Abraham and his descendants, to ultimately bring redemption to the rest of the world. And we've talked about this time and time again, and we have to have this big picture view of the Bible in order to understand any particular element of that story. And so God chooses Abraham and his descendants after him, gives him the law, the priesthood, the covenants, and all of these promises concerning a coming Messiah. He fulfills them in Jesus Christ, and then that is the springboard for, as our friend Steve Schlissel says, for the gospel to go global. From that point forward, God's covenanted mercies are no longer primarily only, never exclusively only for the Jewish people, but primarily in how God providentially worked through history, it was limited to Israel, limited to the Jews, so that even if a Gentile wanted to participate in the saving covenants of God, they would become Jews, right? They would receive circumcision, they would uh, offer sacrifice, they would somehow identify with the Jewish people. But now the gospel is going global. It's going to the four corners of the earth. It's reaching people that hitherto had never um, had any dealings um, with, with God in terms of his written revelation, in terms of the gospel. And the gospel is going to go to them in whatever status they find themselves whether as a Jew or as a proselyte or as a Samaritan or as a Gentile, the fact is it is only it's through Christ and through Christ alone, not through the works of the law, which is to say not by becoming a Jew. Even the Jews are not saved by being Jewish. Right? That's a point that Paul makes as he enters into a dispute with Peter. Peter, later in the book of Acts, is making the argument that all of these Gentiles who have believed, now they must be circumcised. And until they are, they're not fully included into the people of God. And until they are, we're not, we're not going to have table fellowship with them. And Paul says, I confronted Cephas to his face. And I told him that he was not living consistently with the gospel on this point. He says, not even we Jews are saved by being Jewish. He doesn't say it quite like that, but that's his meaning. Not even we Jews are saved by keeping the works of the law, by our circumcision, by our keeping kosher and all these other things. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles are saved in the same way. And that's what um, is being shown to us here also with the Ethiopian eunuch. That the gospel is going to varieties of cultures, people from varieties of backgrounds and ethnicities and religions, and they come into saving union with God through Jesus Christ. So there's a great deal of significance in terms of the movement of redemptive history as the Lord directs Philip to minister to this particular man. The significance lies also in the fact that he was both a foreigner and a eunuch. The significance can perhaps best be seen in another passage of Isaiah that I can't help but to wonder if Philip also pointed out to the eunuch, and that is in chapter 56 of Isaiah, beginning at verse 3. Let not the foreigner, and the Ethiopian was a foreigner, he was not a native Israelite, a native Jew, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people because I'm a foreigner. I'm not a descendant of Abraham. God says, don't let the foreigner who has joined himself to me say that. Now, this is even in the Old Testament. This is a promise even for Gentiles in the Old Testament who would come to join themselves to the Lord, who would come to believe in him. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. There's no hope 
for me and for my future. Now, isn't it it interesting that in Isaiah chapter 56, it mentions people um, under both terms, foreigners and eunuchs. And this Ethiopian eunuch is both. He's a foreigner and he's a eunuch. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain to make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called, shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." You may recognize that that's a passage that Jesus quotes in the New Testament. You see, it had always been God's, uh, a part of God's redemptive intent or his redemptive purpose to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It happened in a very, very limited fashion under the old covenant. It's a much more expansive thing under the new covenant where the apostles are explicitly told by Jesus Christ, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, Make disciples of all nations. So what is uh, stated in the Old Testament and implied as kind of a, a, a subtext of the message of God's dealings faithfully with Israel over the centuries becomes the dominant motif in the New Testament, that God is bringing his salvation to the ends of the earth. So these promises were made in Isaiah chapter 56 to foreigners and eunuchs under the old covenant, that they had a place in God's covenant mercies. But these promises are fulfilled even more expansively in the new covenant. And we we see the beginning of their fulfillment here. Uh, This man who throughout the passage remains unnamed was both a foreigner and a eunuch, and how delighted he must have been to know that he was accepted in Christ. Notwithstanding the fact that he was a foreigner, and that he was a eunuch, because there was actually a law, Jewish law, that forbade eunuchs from becoming joined to Israel. But now he learns that he is accepted in Christ, and what rejoicing he must have, must have expressed. Now, Philip must have said something about baptism in his presentation of the gospel, because the eunuch says, look, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And at this point, some ancient manuscripts add a note something like this, that Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That appears in the King James Version and some older English translations. But it was almost certainly not a part of the original Greek text. It was probably added by a copyist to make um, the, the implications or to, to make what is implied more explicit, to make it clear that this was a necessary um, um, precondition for baptism. Now, it would be interesting, I think, to know what became of this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, to, to see what history came, uh, for him, uh, came to him afterwards. Uh, according to an early church father by the name of Irenaeus, he became a missionary among his own people, which is something that we would naturally expect. And in fact, Ethiopian Christianity had for many centuries a distinctively Jewish flavor to it. 
um, Coptic Ethiopian Christians practice circumcision. They keep kosher. They keep, some keep Saturday as the Lord's Day. Um, there was a long-standing quasi-Jewish Christian empire in which the, the king um, used the symbol of the Star of David um, and other Jewish symbols. He was referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, so there were a lot of interesting um, and significant things about the Ethiopian Christians through the centuries that are deeply rooted in the Jewish faith. And perhaps it's because it stems from the witness of this particular Ethiopian uh, Christian early on. And that body of Christians were for a long time isolated from the larger church um, in the Roman Empire, and so they didn't develop in quite the same way. But we don't have all the history there, but uh, it's, it's interesting to see how uh, he might have affected later development of the church there. Now, the important thing for Luke here is that, again, he recounts the spread of the gospel, um, or that as he recounts the spread of the gospel, it's that it's reaching increasingly diverse groups of people, further and further from the Jewish center. Uh, so the movement in general is from those whose origin is most ethnically, religiously, and culturally close to the center of historic Judaism, to those who are less so. We find a, a early on it's Hebraic Jews, then Hellenistic Jews, then Samaritans. Remember, they were descendants of widespread intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles, and now it's a proselyte. Um, and then later it's going to be out-and-out Gentiles, the God-fearers first, and then pagan Gentiles later on in the book. And the fact that this particular proselyte was from Ethiopia fits into Luke's overall narrative. And remember, it's not just Luke writing this. Luke is writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and he's recounting the divine providential outworking in history of the spread of the gospel. So it's really God who is telling the story, and he's doing so in an orderly fashion to the Jew first and then to the Greek. That's the broad picture, but it can be broken down. Jew, Hebraic Jew, Hellenistic Jew, Samaritan, proselytes, God-fearing Gentiles, and then pagan, outright pagan Gentiles who are still idolaters. They all come to God in the same way, not through their ethnicity, not through their culture, not through their distinctive religious impulses, but through Jesus Christ. And so Luke is telling us this story, and he's telling us, in essence, that a number of other passages and prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled. For instance, Psalm 68 and verse 29, nobles shall come from Egypt, Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. Cush, remember, is the ancient name for the kingdom of Nubia and what we call Ethiopia. And then in Isaiah chapter 45, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God beside him. And so the prophets speak of a day in which people from all the nations of the earth will go up unto the house of the Lord, and there they will find the Lord's salvation. So the gospel is, is uh, moving outward in an ever-widening circle. Luke is showing us that those who were formerly excluded from the people of God are now being included through faith in Jesus Christ. And then again, we're told of 
of um, Philip's subsequent ministry. In verse 39, it says, When they came up out of the water after baptism, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing for the reasons we've talked about. But Philip found himself at Azotus, which is a bit to the north of Gaza, as you see here on the map. And I put that line as a dotted line or a dashed line because it's rather mysteriously stated here. Uh, Philip found himself at at Azotus. Um, Well, first of all, pardon me, it says, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the idea seems to be here that this is some kind of miraculous transportation now, some say that this is just meaning that he, he walked or he traveled in ordinary ways, but the Spirit impelled him to go in this direction. Um, but it seems like it would have been worded a bit differently than this. This is an unusual way in which it's worded. It does seem like it reads as if there's a supernatural transportation of Philip um, from, uh, from Gaza or near Gaza, the road to Gaza, to Azotus which is the ancient city of Ashdod, another Philistine city. It lay about 19 miles north of Gaza. And then it says in verse 40, But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, uh, which is far to the north. So he traveled that coastal road up to Caesarea, which was the Roman capital um, of Palestine in that day, uh, where the governor had his primary place uh, of residence and government. Um, So notice what Philip was doing all along the way. He preached the gospel to all of the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is why he's referred to later as Philip the Evangelist. Everywhere he goes, he's telling people about Jesus in formal settings and not-so-formal settings, on the road, no doubt in the synagogues, in the marketplaces. He's going, wherever he's going, he is preaching the gospel. And he is, fulfilling, he is fulfilling the great commission that our Lord originally gave to the apostles, to the twelve, but applied to every believer in some measure. Our callings are not all the same, um, but within our callings, we are to look for ways to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should share it no matter what the background of the person we're talking to, white or black, rich or poor, old or young. It doesn't matter. Somebody who comes from a church background or doesn't come from a church background, somebody who's Muslim or Hindu, it doesn't matter. Because as we said, God is looking to save. He's looking to redeem people from every nation, from all uh, tribes and languages and peoples. And thanks be to God that he's given us the opportunity to participate with him in this great calling. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, how we thank you for your goodness, Lord, in giving us this calling, this challenge. And we pray that you would help us to be obedient to this calling, to share the good news of the gospel with everyone that we come into contact with. And we know that we maybe don't hold the same office as Philip, for you have given different gifts to different people. Some you've appointed to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And others have different gifts, but in the measure and in the world and sphere of influence that you have given to each one of us, our Father, help us to be faithful, to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And we do look forward to the day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, when people and families of all the nations will come and worship before you.
We thank you that we see the beginning of it in these early days of the church in the book of Acts. Help us, Father, to see a great increase and a great spread of the gospel in our day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.